This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. Joining me this week, two bandmates with a song in their hearts who came ready to shred. Paul Jaisley. Hello. And Kara Chamborski. Guitar solo. <laughs> oh my gosh. We are so musically inclined today here on IRCB because we have a very special topic that we're going to be going into. But before I get into that, I do want to make a two quick announcements one we have a discord hangout coming out on february 20th at 8 p.m so if you haven't come to one of those it's a super awesome fun time um where we just kind of chat with everybody that shows up and we, we're bringing people on like it's a talk show so you get unmuted and you come and you talk to us for a few minutes and then you know we rotate through everybody and then after about an hour or so we open it up to just everybody kind of talking uh these things can go for hours and hours and hours i think the last one some folks were on until 2 a.m um it's it's a lot of fun um highly recommend you be there that's february 20th at 8 p.m eastern standard time on discord so make sure you're on our discord um the other thing i want to do is i want to shout out some of our latest patrons uh that would be matt Kyle, Joel Ambricks, and Jason, welcome to the club. You guys are amazing. I can't wait to hear what you guys think of all of the backlog of Patreon episodes that you got. Saga of Saga, IRCB Movie Club, Mike and Paul read Doom Patrol. I still love that series. It's very close to my heart. Um, but yeah, so thank you guys for joining the Patreon. Um, we're really excited to have you. Uh, now let's get into the actual show. Let me ask the question that I'm legally obligated to ask every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Kara. Um, we are less than a week out from my birthday, Mike. So I am in treat yourself birthday mode <laughs> yeah. a lot. <laughs> I, I mean, understandable, right? Because like, what is time? It's birth month for you as far as you're concerned, right? It, right. it really is. Um, you know what? I, I bought myself. Um, <laughs> so fans of The Mandalorian who are also disney merchandise nerds as we know that is a thing that i am now um might recall that when the first season of the mandalorian dropped there was like no merchandise because they had such a tight lid on the baby that they just there was nothing because they didn't want any leaks and it worked the appearance of that little fucker was like oh my god so but then of course everyone was like uh but i love the kid i want stuff with the kid on it but you can't just snap your fingers and have merchandise appear unless you've got like a, a screen printing setup for t-shirts and can just start rambling them off but like mm -hmm, disney mm -hmm. And Disney started doing that almost instantly, but anything besides T-shirts needed more time. So right. it was like big news when there was new merchandise. And so one of the first things that was announced was this um, backpack. Um, D Disney fans will know that the company Loungefly like just keep, makes Disney mini backpacks and each one has a different design and they sell out all the time. It's like Funko mm -hmm. Pops, but for backpacks, I have four. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so, so uh, that's not really bad though. Um, so the, so Loungefly was like, Hey, we made a backpack and it's got the kid on it. And so the backpack just looks like you're carrying the baby on your back. And it mm -hmm. it was like a really good design. Um, not photorealistic, but you could tell it was definitely the kid, the way the kid looked on the show. And I was like, I need right. this friggin' backpack. And then because people are terrible, <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. they were like, oh no, he looks so grumpy and old, make him cute. So Loungefly redesigned the backpack to make him like 
cute and smiling and young looking and they gave him like a glow up on his skin and i was like but he's not cute he like he's cute but he's a tiny carnivorous monster he's not like the smiling (laughs) thing that keeps popping up on etsy on like get in loser we're getting chicken nuggies sweatshirts like i cannot (laughs) deal with how bad so much of the grogu merchandise is because people insist on making him (laughs) too cute like he's already cute why do you need to make he's not smiling i've counted he smiles like four times in the whole show stop making him smile on the merchandise (laughs) anyway so all of this is to let you know that you know, um, one of my pandemic coping mechanisms, which is why I know so much about Disney merchandise these days, is just going on the shop Disney website randomly because sometimes they just have a sale and they don't tell you about it. And you anyway, mm-hmm. so the other day I went on and they were like new back, new Mandalorian merchandise. And I was like, well, I don't want to keep my money. Let me click that link. And <laughs> one of the first items on the page is the original backpack design. And I lost my mind. And I was like, this is an error. They definitely uploaded the wrong photo and didn't notice it. So I tweeted at the Shop Disney support Twitter and I was like, hey, is this image incorrect or is this actually like the original design? And they replied like, the photos on our website are accurate. And so I screenshotted that reply and I screenshotted the image that I purchased. And if this backpack arrives and it's the smiley, happy, like, boomer fied yoda i'm gonna be so mm-hmm. mad but if it's grumpy mm-hmm. grogu i am gonna be the happiest birthday girl ever kira's kira's only feelings are like anger beyond recognition of the universe and so happy that nothing matters except for the thing that just happened i love it i love it <laughs> so that's where i'm at um in terms of comics <laughs> thank you thank you (laughs) in terms of comics um so uh mike you you don't know this but you're basically my like curator of what new thing i will read because you have good recommendations so yes um finally right six years i'm finally recognized (laughs) so so recently you mentioned the immortal iron fist series uh that marvel had from 2006 to 2009 and you were like it's so awesome you gotta try i'm like okay mike so i got immortal iron fist volume one on hoopla and i started reading it and i spent most of my time being confused but only partially for the reasons you think because for some reason i had not looked at the years this comic was published before starting to read Mm -hmm. it thought for some reason that it was only a couple years old and was very confused by all this like registration talk going on throughout the book (laughs) and i was like wait a minute so i'm halfway through the book and i'm like i don't know what's happening here so then i exit out of the book and i look at the publication date and i was like oh this is a civil war era book Mm -hmm, i didn't mm -hmm. read that one what do i do (laughs) so so you know, it was just kind of a weird experience because I remember seeing Civil War comics like that's all you saw when you went into a comic book shop in like 2005, mm-hmm. 2006. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was reading all the DC crap at the time. And I remember that feeling of like reading a DC book and only understanding the greater context of what was happening because I was also reading the event book at the time. And so I felt like while I was reading Immortal Iron Fist, 
that it probably would have helped if I knew what the hell was going on in Civil War because they referenced it so many times and I was just so lost. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Kara. I forgot that that book is like a Civil War. Civil War like, book, Mike. Book. That yeah. said, that said, um, I I only knew the character Iron Fist through like a few episodes of The Defenders that I saw because everyone had said to skip the miniseries on Netflix of mm-hmm. Iron Fist himself. And I was like, all right. And uh, so I only really knew that like he's a white boy with martial arts. And yeah. I felt like that was enough to start with. And the book did a good job of kind of explaining who that character was, which I appreciated. And I did like the whole, like through the first volume, I did get the sense of, okay, Danny's not just like this arbitrary white boy chosen by this like mythical semi-Tibetan dragon being to have like the ultimate power of Kung Fu. It's like he's the most recent in a long line of Iron Fists going back like a thousand years and having Mm -hmm. the comic book show some of those past Iron Fists doing their thing in their time period. I liked that part immensely. It made me feel like, this this dude was not just like, let's take advantage of all these kung fu movies and capitalize on it. And oh look, he's still around because we can't let go of things from the Silver Age. It was right. more. It was more like, oh, we found like a way to make this character relevant and interesting beyond like mm-hmm. taking advantage of a cultural moment forty years ago, fifty years ago. Jesus. Yeah. So um, overall. I am interested enough to keep reading to volume two, but I'm really mad that they made a lot of it dependent on what was happening in Civil War. Because if I was just an even, if I was a casual reader and you had told me to read this book, I would have just been frustrated the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I will say I I totally forgot that there was like Civil War bits and pieces of it, Um, because honestly, the stuff that really makes that book sore is in my mind is what happens i think after the initial arc everything gets very independent and on its own so i think like if you continue i think you'll get you'll be re- really really happy and i think you're i i i, I really really love this series and i love the Dwayne Zrazinski run that happens after ed brubaker and matt fraction run on this um so i i don't know i think it's really really good from beginning to end well, for 27 issues it's 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 fantastic yeah i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going like i said i'm intrigued and it was also interesting because i was like wait i like i like fraction and did how do i pronounce his name david aha yeah yeah i'm like i like their stuff and then i was reading it and i was like this feels not like hawkeye and then I realized the dates and I was like, this is 10 years before Hawkeye. So that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But you kind of start yeah. to see some uh, like there there are definitely some panels where I was like, ooh, they they used that. This is like a, a theme through the work into the Hawkeye series that that we all yeah. know and love. Um, that was so- my one complaint when I was reading the Hawkeye book was like it felt like David Aha just reused some of his like he reused Danny Rand, but just in a different costume in some places. But like, that's not a really knock on the book. It's just like similar. You know, his art like is very similar. It enough. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's like everything Jen Bartel draws looks the same. But <laughs> right, you know, right, I yeah, like it, sure. but that's what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sean okay. Phillips. Yeah. There's a whole plenty of creators we could talk about that. And super briefly, also, I know we don't really talk about comic strips on this podcast, but I feel like we've all name dropped Calvin and Hobbes enough where I am allowed to talk about sure. Garfield for a minute. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and Wait, did you say Garfield? Garfield. 
Okay, the- Paul, how have you been? How have comic books been? <laughs> no, no, let me talk. <laughs> I get it. Garfield, to many people, is like a lowest common denominator of com- of comic strip humor. But I spent a significant amount of time as a child reading those comic strips, and I had a shitty week. So I decided to go down that particular memory lane. And I was reminded of how funny some of the strips actually are. Like Garfield mm-hmm. gets a bad mm-hmm. rap, and a lot of that is justifiable because there are only so many times you can create a daily three-panel comic strip with a character with a set like range of situations and character traits and make those fresh every time it is just not going to happen that said the early 90s jim davis stuff on garfield is pretty fire like it's not the most intellectual of humor but i laughed i still laugh some of it's genuinely funny like that guy gets the beats of those three panels down and I just like I'm just going to say it. I'm a Garfield apologist. I don't think it's the best work in the world. I think it's funny. And I think that people are allowed to like it. The end. <laughs> you know, I, I you know, I was just I was just giving you, uh, you know, guff for a minute there. I, I think, you know, Garfield's not too bad. I think yeah. like it's become memeified, So it feels like it's lesser. But like, you know, it's a staple to staple of the Sunday newspaper, right? Yeah, I mean, like yeah. I said, the early the early 90s stuff and the late 80s stuff, which is the stuff that I grew up reading, is actually pretty good. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to speak for the, the 2000s in any way, but everything before that, check it out. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, IRCB now recommends Garfield comics. <laughs> uh, Paul... How are you? How have you been? All that stuff. How have comics been? You know, I had my fair share of dog-eared Garfield collections when I was a kid, so I totally get it. So, um, yeah. Thank you, Uh, Paul. Thank you. Um, Oh, things are good here. Uh, We're basically snowed in here in West Michigan. It's uh, been – we had a pretty mild winter so far, but we definitely got our fair share of snow over the past couple days. Mm -hmm. So I'm putting off shoveling as long as I can. I'll probably get out there and do that after we're done recording. But in terms of comics, uh, I've been reading a lot of stuff. I am, as the kids say these days, I am back on my bullshit reading the Judge Dredd <laughs> Complete Case Files. <laughs> I had picked up volume 10 some point last year and just got distracted. So I finally picked up uh, the Complete Case Files volume 10 and started working my way through that. Um, these, This is a collection that collects the Judge Dredd strips from 2000 AD, uh, Prague's 474 to 522. That's around 1986 to 87. Or if you're in Mega City 1, that covers the year 2108 and 2109. This was a really fun collection. Um, this volume 10 has a lot of really short stories in it. Uh, a lot of them are just one and done Judge Dredd strips. I think the longest ones are only like three chapters. So really quick, fun to read. All of these were written by uh, John Wagner and Alan Grant, who are kind of the you know the key important dread writers in the eighties. And you have a murderer's mm-hmm. row of artists working on this book. You have Kevin O'Neill, Steve Dillon, Brendan McCarthy, Ron Smith, Cam Kennedy, Barry Kitson. Jeez. It looks great. It's so cool. Again, any British comic book creator at some point probably drew a dread dread story for two thousand AD. It's just it's the way it worked out, you know. Um, kind of like how they all ended up in Harry Potter. If you're an actor in Britain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of fun to read this stuff because, again, this is a weekly series, you know, and 
when you're kind of binge reading it, you kind of notice trends in a lot of the stories. There is a sequence where I think it's like three stories in a row that end with Judge Dredd sending someone to the psycho cubes instead of the, uh, you know, iso cubes. Because they're dealing with mental illness. Uh, there's a story about someone with uh, multiple personality disorder. And there's also a lot of weird body horror in this volume. So I wonder what John Wagner and Alan Grant were watching or consuming at the time when they're writing this stuff, you know, kind of comes out through the Judge Dredd stories. There's a story about a mother whose name is Sigourney, oddly enough, uh, who contracts who takes her kids um, to another planet on vacation. They contract a disease and all turn into aliens that look a lot like xenomorphs, you know, hence the name Sigourney. And uh, it's really gruesome that the, these kids are running around eating all of their neighbors because they turned into aliens. There's another story about um, a guy playing a, a Santa Claus, like a bell ringer outside, dressed up like Santa Claus. And, he has a window mm -hmm. in his forehead where he can see his brain sloshing around. It's just weird body horror type stuff like that. What? <laughs> it's oh. really strange. But there's okay, all Paul. no. There's, <laughs> I, there's also the other thing I love about Judge Dredd. It's also very funny. There's a whole strip that is just a joke about um, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely from the band Wham and how they broke up because they must have broken up around this time. Because there's a strip where it's two guys, one from Andrew Ridgely Block, and who's the guy in Wham, who's not George Michael, and the other guy from George Michael Block, and they fight because those two blocks hate each other. So you're like, they wrote an eight-page story about Wham for no reason. It's just like the most throwaway story, and I love that they did that, in addition to the more gruesome, you know, typical Dread stuff. So it's, it's a really fun to read that stuff. I mean, when you're putting out a weekly, like, book like that like mm -hmm. anything goes right why not why right. not have a, an issue about wham breaking up <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah and if you're like me and you don't realize that you're reading it in the year 2021 you're like andrew ridgely that's the guy from wham oh my gosh the andrew ridgely block is right next to george michael block oh my gosh this is a joke about wham it was such a funny moment and i, I enjoyed it so much um uh the other thing i read that i wanted to talk about briefly is deceased dead planet number seven which is the final issue in the mm. deceased dead planet series written by tom taylor with art by trevor hairsign or hairsign um i have to give my tip my hat to tom taylor he somehow managed to do a very engaging satisfying uh and surprisingly enjoyable zombie story i mean this dc stuff mm -hmm. i've it's been continually impressive how he's been able to keep the story going and this feels like the last story because it kind of reaches a satisfying conclusion at the end so zombie stories are about the most worn out and tired feeling genre convention you can think of but he managed to make it mm -hmm. exciting i think mainly because he focused on making it a superhero story first uh, this issue opens with some of our remaining heroes fighting off an army of Amazo androids. And if you're a DC fan like me, that's exactly what you want from a superhero comic, you know? I'm and still I'm still stuck on the the name deceased. Like it, <laughs> it, it really took them like seventy five years to get to that. Fun. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, yeah. It, it's it's so dumb that it comes back around to being clever, you know? It's one of those things. Right. Which right. I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> and what I, I really liked about this Dead Planet series I want to mention also is that Tom Taylor focused on some of the more obscure aspects of the DC uh, universe. There's a lot of magic characters in this book, which I've always liked the magic connected stuff in DC. 
And the whole seven issue story, you kind of follow John Constantine as he's on a mission to collect all of these important uh, magical objects like Madame Xanadu's uh, crystal ball and the Spear of Destiny. And it all pays off in this issue. He makes John Constantine kind of the hero of this Dead Planet series uh, in a really interesting way. That's a character I don't not read a lot of. But the way he handles it, I found mm-hmm. really engaging and interesting. So Tom Taylor is becoming one of those writers where I haven't read a ton of this stuff, but I'm willing to give pretty much anything he's written a chance because I've enjoyed it all so far. Yeah, yeah that that was me with Al Ewing for, for a okay. while yeah. where I, I just I hadn't read a lot of his stuff. But every single time I read it, I he knocked it out of the park, <laughs> you know, obviously with his Immortal Hulk and all that other stuff. But even before that, um, I think I had read just little bits and pieces of his work and always enjoyed it. Um, and I think Tom Taylor's also becoming the same thing for me. And now, you know, everybody keeps talking about this DC's thing. I feel like I should maybe get on board. <laughs> like I, both you and Brian can enjoy it. That's that's crazy to me. I ha- that's I have insane. To, to clarify, I have not read it. I have not okay. read it because yeah. I'm so over their stupid event addiction. But you know what? Like, I get it. It makes money. I, I think you know People this. Like it. This one stands on its own. You can read this without knowing anything about the other death metal or big DCU stuff. It kind of stands on its own. Um, and again, okay. if if both me and Brian, who come from DC from very different angles, can enjoy it, I think it says speaks mm-hmm. to its accessibility. You know, in quality. So exactly. Well, exactly. I mean, you're definitely you're definitely making me a little intrigued with the whole DC Magic Wielders thing. That yes, is one yeah. of my favorite aspects of their universe. Same. See, now if you Same. told me the Spectre was involved or my boy Ragman, <laughs> then we could be having a, a slightly more interested conversation. But well, I don't want him on the fence. I don't want to give anything away, but you might be pleasantly surprised <clears throat> by some of the people that show up and some of the things that show up. Um, you want to see oh, Zatanna no and the Phantom Stranger fight Trigon? This is the book for you. So. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll think about it. I'll think I don't about know it, what Paul. any of those words mean, but you know what? It sounds exciting. <laughs> um, Mike, I don't know how to... Uh, <laughs> Tri- Trigon is a, a demon uh, from Kara, another dimension. He's Raven's let's get dad. <laughs> Let's get into it in the break. Uh, <laughs> uh, we don't have time to go through the history of the DC Universe quite yet. But really quick, uh, so this week for me has been uh, so busy. I've played more tabletop RPG games in the last week and some change than I have in a very long time. Um, I keep saying yes to games and I don't know why. So I've just been, when I'm not reading assigned homework reading for the show in some capacity, whether it's a no go, book club stuff, IRCB movie club stuff, uh, or just trying to read a couple X-Men books so that I can be prepared for this episode. Um, I was playing D&D pretty much um, and catching up on On Cinema at the Cinema because I hate myself. I love that show to death. I watch Mr. America um, and it's it's a god-awful mess that is beautiful from beginning to end. Um, but Paul, I for some reason think that you watch that show. I don't know why I think that. Have you watched any of the On Cinema at the Cinema stuff from Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington? I've just a few uh, things years ago. I'm so far behind on that stuff. So, uh, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so if anybody out there watches that ridiculous stuff that's kind of on Adult Swim, let me know. But um, otherwise, I did read a couple comic books that weren't assigned reading, like Hikaru no Go and stuff like that. Uh, I read Abbott 1973 number one. This is Saladin Ahmed uh, with Sammy Cavella. Uh, ultimately, if you liked Abbott, you're going to love this book because it's a it's a direct sequel. It's like he picks up after a little bit of time. Um, 
and what I think is really interesting is that this first issue gets you right back up to speed and it gets you into the gear of just continuing the story. There's like a two and a half page um, summary of what happened in the first arc of, of Abbott, which I thought is really interesting. I think that that makes it really new reader friendly. And I, I, I really like the new challenges that Ahmed has brought to the book for Abbott to face. It's not just, you know, her trying to keep her job. Now it's she's got this job at this at this um uh, newspaper that's that's all uh, African Americans and they all work for this one guy and somebody comes in from corporate and there's there's like that aspect of her job where it's not her trying to keep her job it's her trying to deal with the hardships of working at a at a, a small newspaper um, plus there is some big like like overarching thing with all of the evil magicians in the world um, plus she's got some relationship issues that she needs to work through I really like the multifaceted bits and pieces of this book I think Ahmed has is written. Um, I think this is going to be another uh, mini series, if I'm not mistaken. And I think that there is a lot to cram into this book, but it doesn't feel overwhelming. It doesn't feel like he's going to leave one storyline to the side. The one thing I'll say is that I know that some people don't like these on again, off again, miniseries style comics where it's like five issues on or six issues on. And then we don't know when the next volume is going to come out. And we don't know if it's going to be considered volume two or something like that. But I honestly love it. I think it's a great way for me to like take a breath, like between seasons of a TV show like a good, you know, 10 episode, 13 episode TV show for a whole year is a great amount of television for me. And I think that like six to eight issues per season of a comic book is perfect as well. Um, I, I think that, th- I don't know, this this book is fantastic. And I think that I'd rather give these creators time to create a really good, concise six issue like arc, um, like once a year versus having to bang out 12 issues in a year, because I think that that and it can be tiresome and it honestly it allows me to check out other books when this book is off season i get to pick up other books um and so i I like that uh that they give you this range of being able to either read it month to month or you can wait until the series the arc is done and then you can binge it um without ever feeling like you're behind um so i i really appreciate that and uh, this book is fantastic if you didn't read the first one go read it it's it's a beautiful book and this new one is just as great um, the other thing I want to talk about really quick is Seven Secrets, number one through six. I read all of the issues that are out. This is Tom Taylor, uh, Danielle DeNiculo, uh, Walter Biamonte, and letters by Ed Dukeshire. Um, I'm a little late to the game on this book. I grabbed number one, I think, when it came out because it looked really interesting. Tom Taylor is this hot new thing, um, you know, as we've talked about. Um, I think I mentioned this in like episode 267. Um, and our, our friend that came on the show for that episode, Kevin, was like, Mike, you've got to read this. And we talked about it like after the show. And so I finally picked up the rest of the issues. And I don't know why I slept on this book because Tom Taylor knows how to tell a really fun, engaging story that's very dynamic and very bright and exciting. Um, it sucks you right in um, from the beginning. And I think like he knows how to create these worlds that are like at least for this book, that are it's like a very hard set of boxes that you're not supposed to break outside of and then explosively destroy them um, after a few issues um, once you get used to the status quo. And so if you don't know what this book is, ultimately it's about a secret society who protects the seven secrets of the world. Um, each secret has a keeper and a holder. And the question is, what if those two people fell in love and had a kid? Where do their allegiances lie? What happens to the kid? And that's basically how this story starts. Our main character, Casper, is this kid who was born out of a secret or a key, secret keeper and a holder falling in love and having a kid. And they don't know what to do with the kid. And the secret society doesn't know what to do with the kid, though they hint at this maybe having happened before. Um, we get to see him come of age in this first arc and ultimately building up to a very, very brilliantly done climax of the first arc. Um, and I think that 
anybody who reads this book will immediately be sucked in. This is one of those books that reminds me of Saga in that it is so bingeable. It's so like it feels so personable because there is this ongoing narration of, that Casper is giving as the series as the story goes on, where he's kind of telling you everything that's happened. So he knows what's happening, and you get this sense of like he's not telling you things in certain moments, and then he reveals it later. And it's really well done where you can tell it's someone writing a story about someone telling a story. Um, it reminds me, again, like of Saga and plenty of other books that have done this. Um, and the art in this book, like Dina Kulo and uh, Biamonte, their, their pencil inks and colors all together um, are extremely gorgeous. Like every page is action-packed and feels really excited. There's a lot of energy on every page. Every character has just brilliant facial expressions. And the action in this book is like incomparable like I, I, have, I can't find another book that has such great action that also is really fun and exciting um i mean because you can go pick up a capes book and you can see a lot of action and everyone just looks angry and they're fighting and everything's dark whereas this book feels really bright like i don't know what it is but the color palette of it just feels really like animated um like like a cartoon in some ways where there's just a lot more brightness to the action um yeah, I think that if anybody picks this book up, they're going to be screaming and yelling that the next volume isn't out yet. So um, I highly recommend Seven Secrets 1 through 6. It is beautiful. Um, nice. Yeah, I guess we've cool. got we've to move because we're, we're already <laughs> running behind. So I, I'd love to talk more about these books. But let's get into comic picks. <laughs> comic books are coming out on February 10th, 2021. What are you both excited for this week? Let's start with you, Paul. Uh, I'm excited for Homesick Pilots number three. Uh, this is by Dan Waters with art by Casper Weingard. I picked up the first issue of this on a whim just because I kind of like the cover and uh, I was kind of hooked. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's set in 1994. It follows a teenage high school band named Homesick Pilots and the lead singer, Amy, I think she's the lead singer, I don't remember. Anyway, one of the members of the band, Amy, goes into a haunted house and disappears. So it turns into a sort of a punk rock haunted house story. She has to go hunt down some ghosts that are a part of this house. And, and the last issue, issue two, really expanded the story in a really interesting way. So I don't want to uh, give too much away because I think this is a series that might be a sleeper hit that I think a lot of people are going to discover once it hits trade. But um, suffice to say, it really hits... Uh, the sweet spots for me in terms of a horror story being creepy, capturing that sort of nineties uh, music scene. And there are a couple of uh, mm -hmm. great Ramones references in the second issue. So I was hooked with that you know, right away. So if you're talking about the Ramones in a comic book, it's for me. So there you go. Definitely. I will say Saint in the, in the discord chat also picked this book um, mm. because ever, as, as they said, uh, you know, it hits the, their love for nineties rock, which I think is totally, totally accurate in some ways. Uh, it feels the book to me when I read it felt, felt like kind of grungy, yeah. um, even though yeah. I know they're trying to be more like eighties, it's like seventies, eighties punk rockers. Um, but yeah, Kara, what about you? What are you excited for this week? Okay. So um, I need to slightly yell about DC again. Which uh -huh. I really like. uh -huh. so, so DC has an 80 page special out this week called DC love is a battlefield. Number one. Um, I see friend of the show. Danny has also selected this as his pick of the week. Um, mm -hmm. Good pick, mm -hmm. but um, I'm going to yell about it because I am. I'm always interested in this kind of collection that DC does. I, I'm excited that the solicit says there's a story about Amanda Waller and like a blind date situation. And Amanda Waller in the comics oh is always God. kind of <laughs> right. Right. So she's always kind of represented as this like like she is nicknamed the wall. She is just this suit who does all the shady 
government shit in the DC universe. And mm-hmm. she's always kind of given that she's never really given a lot of character depth. She's just like, that's the wall. So it's nice that like, you know, they acknowledge even in a one shot standalone short story in a larger compilation that perhaps she might have a social life. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um but uh, the thing I want to yell about is <laughs> so petty, but here we are. Um, so in the solicit, DC is like, all oh, your favorite OTPs are here. And I'm like, bold of you, DC, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> to assume who my OTPs are <laughs> I, in okay, your DC's, universe. <laughs> are you telling me that there's a Harley Ivy going on a date, kissing, making out, being in love story? Because I'm pretty sure most DC fans feel that way. And I sure. guarantee you, you're not oh, yeah. printing that. Well, that's, I mean, that's the that's the cover the cover is them so they're at least queer baiting if not doing an actual story um (laughs) no i mean so i this is just making me yell because um you know periodically I, i come back around to the the idea that um batman and superman should be together and then i realize they will never do that for many reasons but uh-huh. because mm-hmm. it would either break the universe entirely because the entire thing would just be about batman emotionally hurting superman because he doesn't want to have nice things or right batman would get over all his bullshit because he would be so in love that he would just not be who he is anymore and that would also mm-hmm. not work so because like their dynamic would work so well because superman is like the man of tomorrow he gets his power from the sun he's all like shiny and optimistic and shit and batman like literally lives in the dark in his past it's like the total opposites attract situation and batman uh-huh, would be all uh-huh. on his bullshit about like but my parents are dead and i have a mission and i'm angsty and superman would be like oh you just need cuddles so i think it would be great but <laughs> it will never happen and this is why i read fan fiction yes uh danny in the chat is asking for some fanfic but um but like anyone who's read the batman superman series from the mid-2000s like that whole first volume it's literally just them be like oh it's just them narrating over one another they're basically thinking the same thing at the same time just on their parallel lines and their own personas and you're like god damn it just kiss already you absolute idiots so you know. oh my goodness well uh we will definitely try to find some fanfic for that uh that's that's pg-13 um and we'll we'll pass it along to the discord folks only oh my god. uh well, my pick for this week uh i guess before i get into my pick it's 2021 and we're trying to do something where we want people to read comic books so if you share the show on social media and tag us on instagram or twitter you are entered to potentially win a $20 gift card to Comixology, Midtown Comics, or your local comic shop if they offer that, um, whichever you prefer. So, Because th- this year, like I said, we want to help people read comic books. So if you go ahead and do that, we can uh, we can make that happen. Uh, this is like a one per person, one person per year kind of thing, but um, we really want to help folks read some comics. Anyways, our Discord picks for this week. Some of the folks on Discord threw us their comic picks for this week. Danny said that he's up for DC Love is a Battlefield with Kara. Uh, Crashmore said that he's up for Undiscovered Country, number 12. Saint said they're up for uh, Homesick Pilots, number three. I'm very excited about all of those books. Actually, I haven't read any Undiscovered Country, but I've heard it's pretty good. Um, my pick for this week, though, is Radiant Black, number one. This is Kyle Higgins with art by Marcelo Costa. Um, this looks like some standard superhero in a suit that gives you powers fair, but um, I'm willing to try it. Um, I, I, I'm adding in like a dash of like, or the story, I should say, 
it adds in a dash of like cosmic powers are coming to get you and i think that i actually like that like these elder space gods want to steal back this superhero suit that this character uh this guy gets um i'm all about that if if anything that's larger than life and larger than being tries to destroy me i'm i'm basically here to read that mm-hmm. um i like kyle higgins's writing uh i like the book cowl that he wrote um i've read some of his other stuff too i really enjoyed it um and the solicit says that it's for fans of invincible and mighty morphin power rangers so like hell yeah that's me that's absolutely <laughs> me to a t i did notice that marcelo costa did some issues of greg pack's firefly and tmnt shredder and hell um but from the previews uh I, his art looks pretty solid it kind of reminds me of ryan otley and jason howard like Again, invincible, uh, Stony Wolfman stuff that like is right up my alley, um, and I think he's definitely leaning into those kinds of styles to make it look a bit more Robert Kirkman style superhero-y. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it looks like standard superhero stuff. But that's not a bad thing um, for for a book that's you know about a superhero. So I'm definitely intrigued to try this. Uh, Image has been pushing this like crazy, so I'm excited to just see what this first issue is about. And who knows, I may just get in on like another superhero book um, that's supposed to be an ongoing. So fingers crossed that it it gets past six issues <laughs> um yeah I, I don't know i guess we'll we're going to take a quick break here and when we come back uh we're going to talk about music and comics and how you enjoy a static medium's interpretation of a fluid medium um and so we're gonna we're gonna talk all about that we've got so many screenshots in our notes <laughs> it's it's disgusting uh we'll be back in just a second For our show this week, we are talking about music in comic books. How do you enjoy a static medium's interpretation of a fluid medium? Paul and Kara were bullying me right inside the break to try to do something really clever and fun, like count us down. I just can't do it. Um, so, you know, <laughs> anyways, we're, we're here to talk like, about that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to count you in. I just, I'm not a front man like that, right? You know, I, I feel like I'm the guy who's running the... You are literally I'm, the front man, Mike. Right. Wait, shit. <laughs> Um, no, I, I, you know, this, this is a really interesting topic because, uh, I've, I think I've avoided it. I've intentionally avoided it on the like backlog of topic lists that we have. Cause I just don't know how to talk about it. Like, I don't know what to say about it. I don't, I feel like I don't have anything interesting to say about it. And then I pitched or Paul pitched it to the show when we were trying to talk, shop around some ideas and say, hey, we've got this in the backlog. Um, what if we approached it this way? Because I was kind of asking what we could talk about other than just quote music and comics. Um, what would be the thing that we go into? And Paul pitched this idea of like analyzing or understanding how music is portrayed in comics. Um, and after we got to talking about it, I realized, holy shit, there's actually quite a lot that we can go into. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, I, Paul, I want to kick it over to you because I know you had some ideas around this. Sure. And it made me really excited about this topic. Yeah, I, I don't know if maybe it's just... Uh me severely missing the experience of going to see live music, you know, for the past year. Oh, for uh, sure. But I've been really thinking about this topic a lot, you know, and uh, there's something about that experience of being in the crowd, watching a band, there's an energy, there's a sound, and there's, there's something intangible about all that that's almost impossible to capture in comics, obviously, since you're dealing with a comic book being silent and static. <laughs> it's very hard to show sound, you know, or portray or convey what something sounds like. So I was kind of thinking of examples. And for me, a lot of the times musical sequences in comics can look sort of stiff or staged or awkward, you know, and it's, uh-huh, uh-huh. it's not a put down to the artist because, you know, it's incredibly difficult to 
portray that stuff effectively. So I wanted to find some examples of how it works and maybe a couple of different types of examples. You know, I think, so we threw some topic, some examples together and trying to pin down different ways to have you quote unquote, hear what's happening on the panel or on the page while you're reading the comic. So I think we got a bunch of examples. I don't know how you want to start running through them or um, talking about them, but I mean, the one that we all read, the one that oh, we all read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We could talk, we could start there. Sure. So yeah. I had, I'd pitched uh, a couple, I pitched a couple um, examples off the top of my head. One of them was the recent Black Canary series from a few years ago that was written by Brendan Fletcher um, and art by Annie Wu and Pia Guerra. I remember really, really enjoying the series when it came out and it did stand out because I think it's one of the better examples of capturing that kinetic energy of a musical performance. You know, all of the members of the band that Black Canary's in look so cool on the page and it makes you want to hear that band while you're reading the comic. So I I also read this when it came out and I remember being like, oh, this aesthetic is so cool. But <laughs> right, on the right. reread, I'm just confused. So it's a good <laughs> thing that the fight scenes and there are there are fight scenes more than musical scenes yeah. are so good. And that that kind of makes the book worth reading. But the plot, I was confused the entire time. It, yeah, it's a book that's an aesthetic experience for me more than maybe a story experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the fight sequences because I remember there being more musical sequences uh, when, you know, in my memory. But when I went back to go reread it, they're fewer, but they almost function as setups to the fight scenes. So there's the same sort of energy in both the fight scenes and the music scenes, which I think really helps the book because – when you see Black Canary standing on stage, she's poised like she's ready to fight. So, you know what I mean? So it, it's a nice parallel between that energy of a fight scene, which we've all seen in comics, and the energy mm-hmm. of a musician or performer would have on stage. It's kind of the same feeling. Well, they kind of go into that in the book also by saying, mm-hmm. hey, Dinah, you don't know how to move on the stage. You're po- you're posed like a fighter. Like they literally <laughs> right, say this yeah. to her, but mm-hmm. like throughout the mm-hmm. book, they're working on that with her because, you know, and I... Guys, I I went into this topic being like, what do I know about music and comic books? And then I was like, oh, that's like 10 things on my bookshelf right now. (laughs) So, you know, I I revisited a bunch of stuff and there is kind of this this through line in a lot of comic books about bands, musical groups, where Mm -hmm. it's not really about the music. It's about the tension within the band. And so in this particular book, the black canary book, it's everyone just kind of being like, well, well, this superhero was basically thrust on us by the record label with no explanation. And she can sing, but she's not like in it to win it like we are. Mm -hmm. And so like, there's that tension that's coming out. And kind of like Paul said, this was a very aesthetic book. And I like, I get, why DC wanted to do this because they're like, oh yeah, Canary, her superpower is having that canary cry with her vocal cords and she wears we've had her wearing fishnets for a thousand years because those are sexy and easy to draw. So why don't we just put her in a band? And it's just it kind of feels like the book itself is almost a meta commentary on what was happening on the editorial side. Sure. And I like i like i get it but also uh, (laughs) she's a martial artist what are you doing 
Right. Yeah, I remember right. that this book feeling like really clunky, but I do remember seeing like the aesthetic of the band performing and like the the handful of moments that we get right before a fight, mind you, um, where they are performing and playing music. It is very exciting. Like there is a a like like a, a, an energy that comes out of the book um, that you can see. And, and, you know, some of the other examples that we have on here, like Scott Pilgrim, and mm-hmm. I grabbed some stuff from Gem and the Holograms and from a handful of different manga that Renee, Renee had recommended. And there is this consistent thing that you see between all of the books where there are like energy lines coming out of people. And it's not to dictate like their actual movement, but it's like the energy and the sound coming out of their voices and their instruments um, that I think makes this like, it kind of puts you in that mindset of like, if you go to a live show, here's the thing that you kind of pick out or that, that you're going to feel when you're there. And I, it's not like you have a direct connection to like the people or the, the instruments on stage. But like there is a as someone who's been to, you know, quite a few live shows like there is an energy that exists in the room where live music is playing when it's really, really loud and you can feel it in your chest and you can feel it in the people around you like that. You can kind of understand that interpretation in these comics. Um, I think the one thing that we probably aren't going to talk about is like, how do you read music in comics? Cause the answer is you don't cause it not, it never makes sense <laughs> no matter how hard you try. Um, but I think there is like an energy there that, that I think a lot of artists try to portray that, that is is very hard to grasp um and i think in some of our examples it works in some of the examples it doesn't but um yeah paul i'll let you jump in here yeah i, I was just going to say i think some of the examples especially gem and the holograms and even scott pilgrim there is an attempt to sort of abstract the art to convey that sense of energy you know what i mean like it's it's rather than it looking oh, yeah. realistic, yeah. it's your the artist is drawing what the sound feels like you know what i mean and sort of trying to make it look too real or too realistic or stage, you know, and that really helps in those instances. The Gem of the Holograms comic, as a fan of the original cartoon, I think the the comic captures the energy of the band better than the cartoon ever did. You know what I mean? It's such a fun looking and engaging, exciting book art wise that I do want to hear those songs. Yeah. You know what I mean? But you get a sense of kind of what they might sound like you know, based on hearing the cartoon, but also just the way that's portrayed on the page. You get, there's just a, such a fun uh, pop sensibility that's just coming through through the artwork. Say how old you are without saying how old you are. I did not grow up watching Gem and the Holograms. <laughs> I found out about it on the internet when I was in high school. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I see what you're saying about like the, the energy on the page for Jem being like, oh, I want to hear that music because yeah. you know, I think as much as we talk about, oh, comics, why are you so obsessed with music when music is the one thing you cannot do? <laughs> is, right. right. Is, yeah. I think it's really tapping into kind of like aesthetics are a part of music. Even if your aesthetic is, I'm anti-aesthetic, I just wear a hoodie. Like that's still your aesthetic. <laughs> so it is right. kind of like when you see how artists are choosing to present themselves you can kind of see through that presentation on the page what the music is kind of supposed to be sounding like genre wise right Mm -hmm. right right and you know the way that they do it in gem is really interesting because uh it's sophie campbell i think does the art for most of the gem stuff and the way that they show the way the gems music looks and the way the misfits look music looks, it looks different. So you can tell the bands sound different. And it's like, again, it's seems like an obvious thing to do, but a lot of artists and a lot of comics don't go the extra step to say different music is going to quote unquote, look different, you know, 
on the page, right? Because that's how you're supposed to right. hear it in your head. So I always appreciated that distinction that she made in the artwork. I, I feel like looking at pages of Gem and the Hologram is going to give me cavities. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so brightly colored. Like it's such a beautiful looking comic book. I've never read any of the Gem and Hologram stuff, but you man, should. oh man, it's so bright and pastel. It looks just like I'm eating handfuls of candy. <laughs> so mm-hmm. go ahead, Kara. So while we're talking about art by Sophie Campbell, we do need to talk about colors by M. Victoria Roboto. Um, So Mm. I have the Gem and the Holograms Outrageous Edition, which is Gem 1 through 10 and some of the specials. And at the back of it, they have like little one of those series of pages where they break down what they did on each page and why and so each member of the creative team has their little notes and actually a lot of the stuff that we're describing about like the mood and the tone shifts that's all the colorist and the artist and writer are very vocal about those choices being the colorist just being incredibly good at her job (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) right so one of those one of those parts of comics we need to talk about more because it matters (laughs) Um, uh, but I was just going to say that uh, I was going to move on to another comic. So do you have any more thoughts on Gem before I uh, we jump I was ahead? also going to move on to a different comic. <laughs> so you go first, Paul. <laughs> I was going to say, well, speaking of color, Scott Pilgrim is a book that doesn't have any color, but kind of manages to do a similar move when it's the musical sequences in that. I guess they did recolor Scott Pilgrim, but I never read the colorized version. Yeah. So uh, the black and white version. They're limited in that sense since they don't have the color distinction, but the way that they show Sex Bomb playing, it's not as over the top and abstract as Gem the Holograms, but there's a sense of the way Brian Lee O'Malley draws the sound coming out of the instruments. It's jagged, mm-hmm. it's uneven, mm-hmm. it gives you that sense of them being that sort of 90s uh, indie rock, shambolic, sloppy sound. Which, again, if you've seen the movie, you kind of know what those songs sound like. But even just reading the book before I saw the movie, I got a sense of exactly how the band should sound. And it turns out they nailed it in the movie. So I can, maybe they, right. they were able to read the book and say, okay, we can kind of tell what this should sound like based on this artwork, you know? Yeah. I, and the thing I really loved about the movie is how they carried that look over. Like when Sex Bob Bomb is playing, they have the little like jagged things coming out of the instruments and out of their faces and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not obviously like one to one to the comic, but it's still like, Obviously, Edgar Wright and his editing team and stuff like that, they had they had a lot of respect for the comic to make sure that that stuff transferred over. Um, the thing that I always found interesting about the Scott Pilgrim books, though, is that they show the band playing. But like Brian Lee O'Malley has full like chords and and lyrics in the like full pages. Like yeah. the one page that I have in our document has like the full lyrics of a song with all of the chord progressions that you would play as, as if you were playing the song. It just, it blows my mind, like how in depth he tried to go with that. And then from the art position, you know, he's also showing like, there's a lot of energy and power coming from the band as they're playing, Mm -hmm. um, which is, it makes that those scenes really exciting depending on what you're trying to get into when it comes to the music. Like he offered a lot in like just a couple of two page spreads, which I think is very, very cool. And it makes me, you know, sort of wonder how much, is it's necessary for an artist to maybe have a background playing music or understand music theory or have some Mm -hmm. of that to kind of effectively portray that. Cause sometimes, you know, drawing someone holding an instrument can look very awkward, uh, you know, or maybe the posture isn't right. But again, if you have that musical knowledge or at least have seen enough photos of bands or seen enough shows, you kind of know how someone should look when they're playing a certain chord. And that those Mm -hmm. little details go a long way, at least for me, when you're trying to portray that stuff. Definitely. 
let's talk about um i've got three different tangents i could go on let me pick one okay Please. so the the wicked and the divine is a comic we've talked about at length on this show and yeah. it is uh for 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 our listeners who don't know the wicked and the divine's concept is that every 90 years 12 gods are reincarnated and this time they came back as pop stars and so it's like oh we can talk about wickdiv because that's about music but i flipped through the first 10 issues of this series and there's only like music being played on like four pages out of the first 10 volumes issues. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, this, <laughs> you know, for a book that's about music, it's actually not about music at all. And I know that's a exactly. recurring theme in a lot of these band books, but where's the music in Wictiv, Kieran, Jamie, <laughs> yeah. where is it? Yeah. <laughs> I know the answer is on their perfectly curated Spotify playlist, but like, right, you yes. know, yes. Um, but, you know, hopping, Hopping back to uh, how you were saying the the movie interpretation of Scott Pilgrim kind of taking the vibe from the comic, um, a film that did not do that was the 2015 Gem and the Holograms film, which right. was bad, oh. so bad, nothing to do with the comic. If it had been like inspired by the comic, which was, of course, inspired by the cartoon in the 80s, we might have had something, but they didn't. And then they almost did at the post-credits teaser for what might have been a sequel if the first one hadn't been so terrible, and they had cast Kesha as Pizzazz in The Misfits. Mm, okay. And I am so mad that that movie is oh. not the movie that got made because Kesha as Pizzazz, if they had followed the vibe of the Gem and the Holograms comic, would have been so good. And we mm -hmm. just that's just something we'll never see. And I'm really mad about that still. Damn you, Hollywood. <laughs> I know. Um, here's my third segue, which is connected, I swear. Um, so cast your mind back to 2003. Gwen Stefani has just released Harajuku Girls. Everything's all about like that Japanese Har Harajuku aesthetic of like that then became like more of a cosplay being a mainstream thing of people just getting dressed up to go out and look all roughly and corsety. And um, in all of this comes from tokyo pop the manga princess i which is a courtney love project and oh. i picked up this manga okay yeah i picked up this manga when i was in middle school like maybe it was early high school i picked it off the rack in the i don't i guess it was a borders r.i.p and um <laughs> totally totally for the cover read the whole series obsessively and this this book it's like courtney love is credited as like part of the concept and i think the character princess i is like a thinly veiled um version of the narrative that courtney love would like us to consider when we're considering her because it's this like demon angel princess falls to earth doesn't know where she is knows that she can sing is trying to find her way meets this handsome young nice man who's gonna help her on her way but her power transcends his and um she's gonna use her power of music to save the world and there's lots of really beautiful aesthetics we are coming back to the whole like comics and music in girls equals fishnets but um interesting <laughs> because courtney love actually did write a song um that ends up in this book as being sung by the main character um huh. And there, there actually is a there's a few songs in in this series, but um, I thought it was interesting. Like I double checked the the credit page, and Courtney Love did write a song. I am 
not familiar enough with her discography to know if it existed before or if it was written exclusively for the manga. But, you know, it's okay. interesting either way that they included that in there. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> I had no idea that Courtney Love worked on a manga. Um, okay. In the okay. early 2000s, yeah. Uh-huh. It's described as gothic fantasy romance, but okay. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, Go ahead, Paul. <laughs> Go on. I was just going to say, you know, so if we're going to talk about manga, that's uh, an area of comics I'm, I'm woefully underread in. But Mike, you did drop some examples here in our show notes. I think Renee suggested a few titles. And what's really interesting is that it feels like in these manga, the way they're portraying music is the same way they portray motion in a fight. Like it looks like manga. You know what I mean? It looks like a fight scene, but they're yeah. playing instruments instead of punching each other. You know, it's the same energy. Yeah. I, I tried to grab I grabbed a couple shots from uh from this series called Blue Giant or one one shot from the series called Blue Giant. I don't know what the series is about, but the main character plays a saxophone and boy oh boy in the screenshot we've got he looks like he's going to die. He's playing the saxophone so hard. Um <laughs> like he's playing out in the sun very loudly um but like there's there's like an energy like in like paul yeah. said it's like a fight scene the way that they the 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 way that it's drawn with the action lines and stuff like that i think it's really interesting that, to use that same kind of shorthand that we see like that artistic shorthand that we would understand to mean there's a lot of energy there's a lot of movement in the scene there's a lot of something happening but to have it show someone doing something that we all know like a regular thing rather than powering yeah. up for a kamehameha instead it is like blasting on the saxophone over a, a beautiful looking river um yeah. which is what's happening in this um uh, the, the other one that i grabbed was from uh this series called kono oto tamare and i don't these these characters i was skimming through this one and it looks like all of the characters play these like i don't know what the name of the instrument is i couldn't find what the instrument was but it looks like a like a, a flat harp and then you pluck upward using it and the way like ev they all, everyone has these little picks on their fingers and it's it looks like a lot like whatever they're doing it's really fast and it seems to be very impressive and explosive <laughs> but it reminds me of scott pilgrim too like in the yeah. way that brian lee o'malley drew some of the like the the energy waves coming off of sex bomb that these people are doing the same kind of thing and again there's these these shorthand action scenes where you see like slanted backgrounds or you see like energy looks like it's pouring upwards from the characters um because they're doing something that's very impressive and i noticed that you know in the various pieces from different manga uh that i saw like this is kind of the the go-to thing um when they're trying to portray something really exciting it's the same shorthand that they would use for action scenes or for quick movement scenes that would are supposed to impress you yeah i thought that was a really interesting way and i wish that renee had could be here today to, to talk a little bit more about that because i know he loves both of these series pretty dearly i read a tropey manga that <laughs> has a topic about music it's called disney's magical dance volume one and oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh i didn't realize this when i opened it but um you know how manga sometimes have like little sidebars from the creators where they kind of like give you background on the project so mm -hmm. towards the end of volume one uh disney's magical dance has an aside from the illustrator now kodaka who's like hey so this is based off of uh an arcade game that's a disney magical dance on dream stage which is okay. apparently a thing in japan Right. So um, so basically they took the the structure of the video game 
and turned it into a comic sound familiar Kingdom Hearts. And um, (laughs) (laughs) it's just so bizarre, but they commit so fully to the concept. So our heroine, um, our heroine is a 13 year old girl named Rin who just she wants to be the very best like no one ever was Um, Mm -hmm. for for our American listeners who are not familiar with manga. If you recall the basic structure of the Pokemon anime that was on like WB kids in the nineties, like you will know the basic structure of this type of manga where it's like, I just want to succeed at this thing and I need to check Mm -hmm. these boxes and do these things before I can get there. So that structure in magical dance is that this girl wants to be a dancer She's really clumsy and her school team is competing in this competition. And so she can't be clumsy anymore. So Tinkerbell p- appears <laughs> and Tinkerbell <laughs> gives our heroine these like cards with Disney characters on them. And when she activates the card, that Disney character pops out and like teaches her something <laughs> about the magic of dance. <laughs> and, oh my and, goodness. I know. And it's just like, I'm like, okay, so in this, in the world of this comic book, we have accepted that Disney characters exist, but they can pop into reality. And when they do that, no one is phased. Got it. So, <laughs> um, so it was just interesting because, you know, a lot of these comics that we're talking about as examples of portraying music are about a band and the dynamics of being in a band. And this was an example that was instead it like, it's about dancing, but this manga does talk about how and and show that it's really about the, the rhythm and like letting the music flow through you. And like, that's a lot of the stuff that the Disney characters take Rin on through her magical journey. Like she gets, (laughs) she doesn't know how to swim at the beach for like a beach sequence because every manga has like an obligatory let's go to the beach and everyone's in cute swimsuits mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Rin is like I don't know how to swim and so Tinkerbell gives her a card with Ariel on it so Ariel pops out of the water is like let's go under the sea under the sea <laughs> and then they're just learning how to she's learning how to swim because um, swimming is just like dancing but in the water because it's all about rhythm <laughs> right <laughs> sure <laughs> So, <laughs> so I thought this was a very different way of considering music in comics. Because, like, I don't know, I don't know what music is going on during this dance competition, but like through their <laughs> movements and the energy of the crowd, all being like, "We can dance too." It's just all about having fun, yay! Um, well, <laughs> like a Mickey firework goes off in the background, so it's like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So it's going going back to that whole like through the context cues of like how people are dressed and the style of dance they're doing, you can make a you get the feel for what the energy is like yeah, in that live right. venue, which is what you guys were saying about, you know, Black Canary and that feeling mm-hmm. like being at a gig. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, to kind of expand on that, I maybe want to like have some counter examples of comics that I think effectively capture that aspect without being the sort of abstracted examples like Gem and the Holograms or where they're trying to draw the energy of the music. They're just trying to capture an aesthetic sort of moment uh, or or look of a band on stage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and have yeah. it be a little more realistic and grounded. And of course, my go-to example is always going to be Love and Rockets. There's a lot of examples right. of Hopi, uh, one of the main characters who's in a band called the Jerusalem Crickets. There's a lot of great scenes of them playing, but it's not, you don't get the same 
visual information as you did from those other examples we have. Instead, it almost just looks like a photo of a band on stage. It's a single panel moment capturing just the way they look, the way they're holding their instruments. And that's enough to convey the vibe of what they're doing on stage, I think, because Jaime Hernandez is the greatest right. artist you know, in, in all of comic dumb. So of course it looks beautiful <laughs> and looks amazing. Um, yeah, I have a yeah. couple. I have a couple examples. The most famous one you could probably look up is Love and Rockets number twenty four. It's an iconic image of Jerusalem Crickets playing on stage. The way it's shot, you see the back of the guitar player Terry down. You see Hopi off to the side. You see the crowd of people. Um, some of them look excited. Some of them look angry. Somebody's giving the finger. It just captures the punk late eighties, early nineties aesthetic so perfectly in a single image. You can hear that chord that Terry down is hitting on the guitar, you know, just looking at that image. There's so much power in that. It reminds me of the photos you see of the LA punk scene of the eighties that Glenn Friedman did. And of course, Jaime was a part of that scene. He knew what was going on and he kind of captures that feeling so well in such a different way than those other comics we've mentioned. Yeah, I, I noticed that looking at the screenshots, I was like, huh, Paul really isn't selling it with this Love and Rockets book uh, <laughs> compared, compared to some of the other stuff. Um, but now that you say that, like this, I, every every snapshot that you've got in, this, in these uh, screenshots that you have here definitely like makes me feel like I've been like I've been to this place. I've been I've seen this band. I've mm-hmm. been to this show where it's kind of like a divey bar place and you know people you know there there is a, a raised stage but the people are pressed right up against it like just that cover of of uh Love and Rockets 24 with like the people leaning on the stage like you don't you don't get that at like a big venue. You get that at like a dingy basement where like the guitarist is literally like 7 inches away from the ceiling because the place is like underneath the coffee shop or something yeah. like that. Um I, I really love the look of that thing. It, it definitely feels like a, a, a image of its time because the people look like they're from the eighties and early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely feel, I understand the aesthetic of what, what he was going for with these versus the energy of the others, right? Like even right. looking at, you know, like again, the Scott Pilgrim or I have like a screenshot from umbrella Academy in here as well. Like they're trying to portray the energy of the music versus a moment in time, which I think is what love and rockets is definitely doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like I say, you no, know, Jaime played in a punk band. He did uh, gig posters for the, a lot of the LA punk bands. So he's so tuned into what that looks like that, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's so realistic, you know, have, having a background in that music and knowing what it sounds like, he's conveying it perfectly just from those single images. So, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a similar example I dropped in here was from Mike Allred's David Bowie biography, uh, Bowie, uh, Stardust, Ray Guns, and Moon Age Daydreams. It's a similar thing where uh, Mike Allred has a history in music. He's done music-based comics before. All of the instruments look period correct. The clothes look period correct. It looks exactly like a photo of the band playing. And that, that mm-hmm. sort of vermicitil- mm-hmm. for What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, for sim- I'm not going to be able to say it. Versimilitude. 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 Thank you. Uh, it's one of my favorite teenage fan club songs, Versimilitude. Anyway. Um, <laughs> That helps in that sense, again, because I know David Bowie's music and I know what that sounds like just based on the way he's doing mm-hmm. it. So he doesn't need to abstract too much. He does later on in the book, but a lot of the early images, it's like you hear that mid-60s British pop band right on the page just by looking at the way it's drawn. So those are some counterexamples. Again, these examples, it kind of helps to know what that music sounds like in the first place, but I still think they're effective mm-hmm. examples of showing how to portray that through a comic. Yeah, because you like even if you're only getting snippets of this, like there is an energy that just that those images by themselves can portray um, without trying to show off like 
the energy coming out of the voice or coming out of the microphone or coming out of the instrument like some of the other place or some of the other examples that we have are um it's curious curious paul interesting um i would be remiss if i did not take this opportunity to mention of course Josie and the Pussycats and the yes. Archies as concepts. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> since uh, those those bands have been such a big part of Archie Comics since the 60s. I forget if the cartoons or the concept in the comics appeared first because they happened around the same time. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of an example where it's like, hey, um, well, we have this music now that's attributed to this fictional band we made up. So let's just use those lyrics in this book, which is why, you know, for the next 60 years, they've just been putting the lyrics to Sugar Sugar in their comics, which, yeah, Sugar Sugar hit number one on the Billboard 100 for a month in 1969. Ride that. Ride that forever. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the the Archies are the bands that Archie, Betty, Veronica reggie and jughead comprise and they they have just perennially popped up in the archie comics whenever there needs to be a band and they've always been used to to pretty decent effect and it's always nice to see like you know oh jughead's so lazy except when he's drumming (laughs) (laughs) or you know people people like me who read way too deeply into archie comics it's like all right so archie's playing the guitar and he can sing oh and reggie plays every instrument you need him to so reggie is the more talented one okay (laughs) (laughs) and you know for for a really long time i think um betty was just like the tambourine girl and like veronica was on the keyboard because i guess those were the girl instruments or whatever but uh <laughs> sure. yeah. and then of course there's josie and the pussycats where the most of the, so josie the character existed prior to the band and then they just gave her this total revamp where they're like okay instead of she's josie the title is now josie and the pussycats and she's got melody and valerie in her group and like mm-hmm. I, I always struggle to find examples of the girls being in high school, actually, because I think they're like supposed to be the same age as Archie and his friends, but they're like only rarely pictured actually at school. They're mostly just mm-hmm. in the band and their existence right. is about the band. Um, so it was interesting with the Josie and the Pussycats series that Archie put out uh, three, four years ago with Marguerite mm-hmm. Bennett writing. And yeah. they just they just made it post college and just eliminated that whole that whole thing <laughs> yeah. and and like that book um that book opened up with lyrics to a song like I think Marguerite Bennett wrote some original lyrics like for the Pussycats in this admittedly very strange book like Mar I love Marguerite Bennett's work but she does get meta very quickly and mm-hmm. that can be hard to follow for people who don't understand what references she's using. Mm. So like reading the new Josie and the Pussycats book, like it's very about the music and like there are there are lyrics written in, you there are uh, visual cues based on the aesthetic of the Pussycats changing outfits as they like start their band. But there's just there's just so many like breaking the fourth wall like moments on every single page where I'm like, "Okay, I enjoy this." but most people would probably just be frustrated and lost. So, right. <laughs> um, but again, like this, this focus on the music being a more 
literal thing as opposed to the this is not about the atmosphere this is about here's some lyrics and here we're talking about the dynamics of a band without mm-hmm. making it metaphorical yeah that I mean, that's yeah. i've always been fascinated by the archies because it's it's the perfect mix of uh it's an actual band i have several archies records in my collection that i listen to pretty regularly <laughs> so it's a real band wait it's a cartoon band what and they're also in a comic book well there's a whole thing mike so you know, you know the monkeys right yeah so the monkeys were you know a put together band for the tv show um and of course they wanted to write their own music and play their own instruments yeah. and the guy who ran that who in charge was like i can't deal with these guys with their egos make a cartoon band and they won't they won't talk back and that's how they came up with the idea for the archies it's completely made up and they got studio musicians to play on the records and that's the idea it's like a fictional <laughs> band that actually doesn't exist that's, well, I, mean, I love it. Josie, that's amazing. The records are great. Josie and too. the Pussycats. Josie and the Pussycats got one of the greatest albums of all time on their <laughs> film soundtrack. Like that's right. That yeah. album, yeah, that album is is like quote unquote Josie and the Pussycats. But I think it's really Letters from Cleo. Is I that think right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Like and so, but, but like the album totally slaps. It's like one of my favorite albums ever. And it's so good. And that's all original songs. And they're like, yeah, this is like Josie and the Pussycats. And they like sent the actors to like band camp. They didn't actually learn how to play the instruments, but they learned enough where it wouldn't look totally garbage when they were filming the movie. This is the Josie and the Pussycats with, uh, with Rosario Dawson yeah. and mm-hmm. Tara Lee Reed Cook. and yep. Rachel Lee Cook. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Alan yeah. Cumming is one of those villains. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, he is. We could go on about Josie. Mm-hmm. I always get that movie confused with Charlie's Angels for some reason because I think they came out at like the same time and they're all they're both brightly colored and there's a trio of women, um, but they're drastically different films because it's Cameron Diaz and Lucy Liu and Drew Barrymore. Anyways, right. I don't know. No, no, there's, there's a joke this, about that, though. Um, I think I think Charlie's Angels came out first and then Josie. And the most recent time I watched Josie and the Pussycats, I noticed there's like a magazine cover on a table in one scene where it is those women from Charlie's Angels. And I thought that was a really good reference. <laughs> That's great. We'll have to, uh, you know, I think we could have a whole conversation about Josie and the Pussycats. We might need to add that to the list of movies for the movie club. And then Carrie might be a Ooh. special guest for that one. I'm just throwing that out there. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> but I will um, talk about Josie and the Pussycats all day. Yeah, great. <laughs> I, I can tell. <laughs> Me too. So um, I love it. I uh, very briefly want to mention probably my favorite example that I pulled so far, uh, which I think is maybe the most interesting and as far as i'm concerned it's a three-page sequence from jason lute's epic book berlin which kind of chronicles pre-world war ii uh berlin obviously hence the title but there's a three-page sequence where you show he shows a jazz band an american jazz band that's come to berlin to perform and there's like a them performing and it's like a two-page spread that goes onto a third page and it's a clarinet player playing a clarinet solo and it's quote-unquote silent he doesn't draw any musical notes there's none of the sort of abstract sound waves coming off. It All it is is a series of panels where he's just showing the way the clarinet player is standing, his posture, the way he's holding the instrument, the angle of the instrument in the air. And when you look at the panels and the different sizes, you literally hear that solo. Like it's amazing how he's able to convey the sound of the solo, the notes going up, going down, coming back around. 
the energy, the performance, all in just these simple, simple panels. It's a truly stunning sequence. I want to make sure we mentioned on the show. Yeah, I, I'm looking at that that screen grab you you dropped in our notes, and it it's it is fascinating. Like, I've only maybe seen a handful of professional clarinet players, probably <laughs> only in movies, right? Um, right? I should say I just watched The Rocketeer, and there is a clarinet player in that, so I totally get this. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's interesting because like it there's clearly a lot of action happening, but like it's there's nothing else going on. But like there there is like definitely a a feeling of music being played and obvious like his facial expressions alone are enough to convey that like he's putting a lot of energy into this into this device or <laughs> into this instrument um yeah so it's, it's a really interesting thing i've i feel like i've heard of this book a zillion times maybe i should actually finally check it out i yeah i read it uh maybe two years ago and it's i mean it's a long book it's 400 500 pages uh but it is well mm-hmm. worth the time and money investment to dive into that book it's, it's truly a masterpiece and this i remember seeing this particular image and this sequence of pages and just kind of just stopping and just taking it in panel by panel just to try to try to hear mm-hmm. that that performance you know as it's shown on the page yeah that's really interesting um well, yeah, I guess I, I don't know. Do you guys have any final thoughts about about uh, music and comics? I know we've talked about everything, and there's obviously well, a handful of topics we could go into. But is there anything that we didn't cover you want to make sure we touched on? Super, super quick. Um, mm-hmm. Phonogram, because Phonogram yeah. was Karen Gillan and Jamie McKelvey's baby before Wiktiv, and that one is like even more about the music and kind of how it makes people feel. And I, th- I feel like that's a very interesting book to think about in terms of this discussion, because they're very aware of the limitations of the comic book medium. So I think phonogram mm-hmm. was kind of their way of saying, how do we take music, the thing we love and turn it into a comic, the other thing we love. <laughs> and they, they hit upon this concept of um, phonomancers, these people who can use music to like change how people are feeling essentially. Mm-hmm. And they were like making these really interesting choices. And in how do you convey that visually when you have no audio, but the thing you're trying to talk about is audios. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this discussion yep. would not be complete without a, a cursory mention of phonogram. And yeah. True. Yeah. I did. I, yeah. while we were kind of talking here, I did go to, I did go grab a screenshot from that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there is a moment in which David tries to, he basically tries to go back in time because you know, it's a comic book. Um, so he has to like get into the mindset or he has to, he's not trying to go back in time. He's going, trying to go back to a memory. Um, and he basically has to go into this, this uh, uh, like old rest or this new like DJ house that used to be like his, his, like what he calls his sanctuary where like he would do play, play all of his music and be a sad emo kid. Um, and so he's dressing the part and he leaps as he's trying to enter this memory. And there's like this artistic take on someone falling into music, falling into the memory of music um, that I think is, it's a beautiful shot. Um, and yeah, phonogram is phonograms are pretty, it's an okay read i mean i think like unless you're really fucking into brit pop um this book uh probably will just be okay for you but i I say that after only reading it reading it like two or three times but i don't know paul your thoughts on this (laughs) i want to say i I tried phonogram and again not being too into brit pop or house music uh kind of fell flat for me but but um it looks nice i'll give it that much so like i said should should not be absent from our our 
our broad reaching conversation about absolutely not. dance on, absolutely on not. the one end you've got phono- phonogram and on the other end you've got disney's magical dance and everything else falls somewhere <laughs> in between right yeah and i mean honestly I, I i'm sure that i'd be getting an angry talking to from tia if we didn't bring it up on this episode so thank you for making sure that i don't get in trouble uh, <laughs> um well, yeah, I guess with that, I, I mean, I, I Paul, I really appreciate you kind yeah. of like rounding out this topic for me, um, because again, I was kind of lost on it. Um, but this is this is a really inter- interesting discussion. We've got a ton of examples here. I'm going to make sure um, we at least drop all the titles in the show notes. So if you're curious about any of the books that we talked about today, they'll be in there. Uh, to wrap things up here, you know, you can follow us all on Twitter. You can follow Kara at Kara S. Sam. You can follow me or Paul at Oh Hi Polly. You can follow me at Mike Raffin, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. This episode first aired on Patreon and is possible because of our wonderful patrons. Join today for exclusive series like IRCB Movie Club, Saga of Saga, and more. Join now at patreon.com slash IRCB podcast. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to rate and review the show. I think five stars is a pretty fair rating. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, <laughs> Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It honestly does help the show out and help us find new listeners. And you can also join the RSB Discord community to chat about comics and pretty much anything else. You can also listen to our episodes live as we record them at rsbpodcast.com slash discord. And again, it would help us out to spread the word. If you told your friends about the show, mention it at your local comic shop. Tell the world. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music. We can't thank them enough for their support over the years. Xander is a is our editor. He's also just a great guy, just a nice person to talk to sometimes. I want to say thank you to Kara and Paul for this episode for working on this episode with me. Thank you to everyone in the Discord chat, Crashmore, uh, Matt and Saint and Danny and everyone who was able to show up today. Thank you for checking out the show live and thank you to everyone out there listening who subscribes and shares the show. We truly appreciate your support over the many many years of IRCB. And until next time. Comics are good, and so are you.